we talked after a service in the parking lot. A young woman had attended our church for some months by that point in time, and she was intrigued by what she was learning, by what she was hearing from the Bible teaching, and what she was seeing in the lives of the members of this church. But in that moment, she informed me that this was probably temporary. She was going to try Christianity for a while. And then perhaps she'd continue her quest and investigate other religions and other ideas. Seeking to balance respect with frank realism, I said something to her that I know shocked her, but she needed it. I said, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Jesus Christ is no vendor showing you His wares, hoping you'll buy, encouraging you to come back at a later date should you not find something that satisfies you elsewhere. It doesn't work like that. Christ's call is life-transforming. He calls us to die. He calls us to find our radically new identity in Him. We don't fit Jesus into our personalized mix of spiritualized beliefs or include Him in our self-improvement program. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow Him. It's a one-way trip. There's no turning back. There's no weighing other options. There's no waffling death to who we are and life in union with Him. Now, I don't mean to say that it's evil to study other religions. I've done that myself. I know that others have, and it's sometimes even wise to perceive what other religions are saying, if for no other reason than to see the beauty of what we have in Christianity. I certainly do not mean to say that salvation is achieved by means of radical commitment alone. Make the radical commitment and that will impress God. You'll be saved in that way. Certainly not. But the call to trust Jesus as your Savior is a call to radical identification with Christ. We are born in Adam. Our identity, born in Adam, is self. We broker in self-promotion, in self-fulfillment, in self-satisfaction, in self-protection. But when you trust the Gospel, when you place your faith in Jesus crucified for the forgiveness of sins, when you trust in Christ risen from the dead in conquest over death and sin, you receive a new identity in spiritual union with the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Your very identity is transformed. Who you are changes. This new identity changes everything in our lives as well. Our personal agendas and affections are forever calibrated to the interests of the risen Christ, who lives today, who is calling out a people for His name, who continues to bring people out of darkness into light, our little lives lock into that grand picture. And all of this new identification, despite the physical danger that it brings, the social rejection, 
the personal costs. As we come in our series to Philippians chapter 1, I invite you there to the first chapter of Philippians again in verses 12 to the end of the chapter. The question that we need to ask in light of these considerations is to what degree does my life reflect radical identification with the agenda and the saving purposes of Jesus Christ? Remembering the context, Paul is imprisoned almost certainly in Rome. The Philippian church is deeply concerned for him. There is knowledge that has come to them that has troubled them. And they are wanting assurances about his well-being and the advance of the gospel. They're committed partners. There's a deep kinship here between the two. And Paul speaks of that in the introduction to the letter in verses 1 through 11. At verse 5 he says that he rejoices because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They were heavily involved in the work that Paul was doing because they saw the work of the risen Christ. This was their new identity in Him, and now they're participating with Paul in advancing the gospel throughout the known world. In verses 12 through 18, Paul addresses the Philippians' concern for him and for the gospel work that they're doing together. And through to the end of the chapter, we find three distinct sections. You can mark them out here, verses 12 through 18. Is divided somewhat, uh, but uh, there's a section here, verses 12 through 18, that holds together. Verses 19 through 26, a second section, and 27 through third, 30, a third, each highlighting a characteristic of a life that is wholly identified with Jesus Christ. We'll look at these three characteristics together. First, identification with Christ prioritizes the work of the gospel over personal honor and ambition. Identification with Christ prioritizes the work of the gospel over personal honor and ambition. I think this is what we see in this first section, verses 12 to 18. Paul begins, I want you to know, brothers, having introduced the book, now getting to their concern, I want you to know, brothers, and that is uh, the church there, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, Paul faced some serious difficulties. By this point, he had been in prison for years. And swirling around him at Rome were a number of antagonists who troubled his ministry. But here he is, imprisoned, harassed, even by those who claim Christ, and rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? God had used Paul's incarceration to advance the gospel. Paul's natural desires for freedom and security and prosperity and ease took second place to his desire to see the gospel advance. Paul so thoroughly identified with Christ that the work of the risen Savior to call out a people for His name from among the nations meant more to Paul than his own comfort and convenience. Here is one truly identified with the cause of Christ. Personal interests are set aside. Now what precisely had happened to Paul, we cannot say. It's not entirely clear. But some development in his situation deeply troubled his gospel partners. They had known that he was in prison for some time. It's unlikely that that's the news that they're receiving. But he says, brothers and sisters, don't worry. It's all good. 
It's all good. In verse 13, he provides the first of two evidences for this good that has come. What's happened is served to advance the gospel, verse 13, so that, here's one of the evidences, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He was bound, but the gospel was free. How often were elite Roman soldiers trained to protect the emperor called upon to guard a Jewish rabbi? I doubt that happened too often. And very quickly the word began to spread the questions. Who is this guy? Why is he in here? Why are we guarding him? And Paul speaking to them and answering that question and others answering, it became clear he is here for one Jesus Christ. Paul was their captive prisoner. They didn't realize they were his captive audience. And from his mouth, then by word of mouth amongst the soldiers, the gospel message spread. Think of that. Think of how Paul sees that. That, he says, is worth it all. The second proof of this good outcome comes in verse 14. And most of the brothers, in addition, most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Again, brothers, I think you're taken as believers in general. That is, the Christian community responded to Paul's imprisonment by trusting the Lord, and the result was an energized surge of courageous witness for Christ in the region. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. This is a bad turn of events. It would seem in many respects the gospel has been stymied. No, Paul says the imperial guard has heard the message of the gospel and now others are emboldened by this imprisonment. Verses 15 to 18 add detail to the response of the Christian community to Paul's incarceration. And here some of the controversy that swirled around Paul comes to the surface. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, these preaching it from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That is, there were faithful, loyal partners in the gospel who proclaimed the gospel in the streets that Paul was set to defend, possibly before the emperor as he's here in prison. So they thoroughly identified with the risen Savior's mission, so much so that the natural fear failed to deter them in their gospel enterprise. They saw what Christ was doing. It was clear here then what their call should be and what they should do and how they should respond. It energized them. It gave them courage to speak all the more. But there's another group of witnesses. They also witnessing to the death and to the resurrection of Jesus who did not see Paul in their eyes as a partner. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Verse 17. They proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. 
That is, they preach the gospel with impure motives. For reasons we cannot discern, they perceive the gospel enterprise in competitive terms. There was envy, there was rivalry, and that's how they operated. They evangelized to gain adherence for their party as much as they evangelized to gain disciples for Jesus. And with Paul in prison, they served the interests of their own success and their own prestige. Commentator John Eady puts this well. He says they did God's work in the devil's spirit. They did God's work in the devil's spirit. They professed love for God, but they evangelized as much out of antipathy for Paul. It's twisted. It's bizarre. One can only imagine the angst this would have caused Paul, particularly because their their message likely included elements of false doctrine. But how does he respond? Here we again see the identification with the cause of Christ that's superior to his own interests. He is suffering through the trials that he's facing with these people. But he says, I rejoice because the word of Christ is proclaimed. That's his priority. In verse 18, Paul exemplifies a spirit so thoroughly synchronized with the reigning Christ that he can say in light of his imprisonment and in light of these sinister efforts of his rivals, he can say, verse 18, what then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. That's gold. That's hard to find in this self-oriented world. But he concludes that a dirty hand extending bread to a starving person still feeds the hungry. And so he rejoices even in his rivals. And he knows that the gospel, never bound by man, will continue to reverberate through his prison, through his incarceration, wherever he was. Whatever had changed, Christ was sovereign. Everything is going wrong for Paul from a worldly perspective. But one whose identity is bound up with Christ sets aside ambition and prestige and success and ease. If Jesus' mission has profited Paul's suffering, by Paul's suffering, he rejoices. That reminds us that we cannot work in gospel enterprise with everyone. There are reasons because of what we believe, but we cannot walk in close fellowship as we proclaim the gospel. I remember a, a young man some years ago, he had, there were some other Christians in the city and he didn't understand why we couldn't join with them in evangelistic enterprise. And I, I just said to him, go ahead, go to the meeting, see how it goes, come back and talk to me. I knew it would be, was not a good idea. But it was interesting. He was so enthused to join in gospel enterprise with this group of other Christians, but he came back to me and said, wow, you were right. That doesn't work. That's just a reality 
in our world. And we're not saying we're right, everybody else is wrong in every matter. We don't always know what exactly Christ thinks about what we think and about the efforts that we put forward. We need to humbly relate to other believers in Christ. But there are people you can't work with. The teaching is too far apart, even though the gospel is at least in some sense shared. But what we should always do is rejoice. We should always rejoice. There are people who hear, are hearing the gospel. They're hearing that they've been born in sin and need a Savior. In that we rejoice. We don't throw rocks. We don't criticize on that point. But with Paul here, may we line up and say the cause of Christ is much larger than us, and we rejoice. If the gospel is proclaimed in truth, we celebrate. Imagine how hard this might become for us. Imagine that such, that such a church tried to purchase our property. It's like, well, it's not for sale. Why do you want to purchase our property? And they had somehow got the sense and they received this, what they believe, revelation from God that this property should now belong to them. And we're just kind of like, what are you thinking here? And then they sue us to try to gain access to our property. They begin to smear our name in the press and we notice that people stop visiting our church. The word gets around from the community. Some of these lies are believed and our church is really struggling because of how people are perceiving us. And then we come to find out this strip mall right over here, that church purchases that property right next door. And having purchased it, we notice that their parking lot is filling up week after week. And we begin to hear stories that people have come from darkness to light. They've trusted the gospel and they're following Christ. How do we respond? Make it a lot harder to rejoice, wouldn't it? But we should. If we see the cause of Christ going forward, the name of Christ advanced, we rejoice in that. We don't embrace their methods. We don't embrace their theology fully. But in that, we celebrate the message of Christ because that's more important than our reputation. That's more important than our success in others' eyes. Is this in us? Is this orientation in me? Are we willing to set aside pride and ambition and reputation to rejoice in the gospel's advance? And let God figure things out later. May this mark us. May this radical identification mark this church. Identification with Christ prioritizes the work of the gospel over personal honor and ambition. A second characteristic we find in verses 19 and following. Identification with Christ overrules one's view of life and fear of death. Verse 19 he says, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether he lives or whether he dies, Paul's ambition is to serve the cause of of Christ faithfully. 
He speaks here of persevering in the faith and thus fulfilling his mission despite opposition. I think Paul is here looking very broadly, a big overview of his life and what's going on. It means the intimidation of persecutors and the fear of death will not deter him, but all this suffering will result in his deliverance. How does the suffering result in his deliverance? It's not, I don't think, deliverance from prison that he's talking about. There's a number of reasons to support this interpretation. We won't take the time to look into them here. But I understand the word deliverance here to be of his ultimate salvation. How will Paul achieve that goal? Not through self-dependent self-confidence, but verse 19, what is it? Through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Perseverance in the faith depends not on our own strength and faithfulness. As Paul is in prison, he's not saying, I'm depending on myself to continue in the faith and to end this well in honor of Christ. That's not what he's saying. It depends on the Holy Spirit enabling, empowering, and strengthening me to the end. You notice what we also need, verse 19, is one another's prayers. Your prayers will help me reach my ultimate deliverance. So it it reminds us that continuing in the faith, continuing on as a Christian, being faithful to Christ, is not a merely individualistic undertaking. Private devotion as I seek to grow in Christ is crucial to my spiritual growth. Perseverance, however, is also a corporate enterprise. In the eyes of God, a small group of church members praying for you by name on Wednesday night in the circles that are found here in this place, A small group praying for you by name on Wednesday night. Do you realize that may contribute as much to your spiritual growth as you're reading the Bible privately that morning? It's not just about how you get alone with God and what you accomplish alone with God, as vital as that is. I don't want to minimize it at all. But it is just as vital that your brothers and sisters are praying for your growth. And they are. It's just as vital that you are praying for theirs. Are you? We grow through the prayers of God's people. The apostle recognizes that. This church that he started, he took the message of the gospel to them. He is an apostle of Christ, and he says, your prayers will help me persevere in the faith. Your prayers will combine in God's plan to bring me to ultimate deliverance. It's an amazing thought. In verse 21, we find the statement on which everything else hinges in this passage, I think, where he just breaks out and says, for me... For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Even life and death are placed in a radically new perspective by identification with Christ. To live is Christ. I identify with Him. He's my life. 
To die is to be with Christ. That's gain. To go on living in the body is to identify with Him, to walk with Him, to be united with Him, to live every moment for His glory. To die is to enter His presence, and that is to win. I'm pretty confident the soldiers didn't run into that philosophy very often. If you execute me, I win. To die is gain. This deeply personal life confession displays that radical identification with Christ. Jesus is Paul's life on earth. He's his ultimate prospect in eternity. Consider this. Consider this. There's so many ways we could turn it. But Christ is my life. To say that is blasphemous if Jesus is not God. To say that is blasphemous, I think, if Jesus is a lesser God. My life is Christ. To die in Him is gain. It's also an absolutely meaningless statement if Paul is not united to Jesus for eternity. We hear a lot about identity crisis in our day. People trying to find themselves, trying to figure out who they are. It's even morphed now in our generation into open discussion of things such as transgender confusion and changes and the like. How do you look at it all? I look at this whole transgender thing and the development of it. I look at that in one way to see there the evidence of a yearning to be changed. If you as a human being do not have a yearning to be transformed, you're just deadening the reality that's deep inside. We must be remade. We must be made new. Now how the world goes about that becomes twisted and lost and confused because there's no answer to how I find a new identity. Well, Christ is that answer. He is that new identity. He is life itself. That's what Paul speaks of here. He would be seen as strange, insane, a religious addict, a nutcase. And so will you be seen that way by people who long to be someone else but have no idea how to ever get there. Can you say this? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 22 he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to bar- depart and be with Christ, which seems to connect to what the gain is in verse 21 of dying. It's to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He's, he's a bit conflicted here. 
To depart is to die. To die is to be with Christ. To die, therefore, is gain. He doesn't believe in soul sleep. He doesn't believe in purgatory. To die is gain. To die is to be with Christ in His presence. Since death is gain, since it is being with Christ, I'm pleased to die. But if I did, I'd not have the opportunity to continue to disciple you. So I want to leave and I want to stay. This isn't a suicidal man. This isn't a man sick and tired of life. This is one who recognizes, identified with Christ, he's going to be in a unique way in the presence of Christ upon death. So knowing that is exciting to him. Dying is good. But staying here is good too. Because staying here, I can continue to work with you. I can continue to disciple you. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Probably not a prophecy he might, it would seem that he might mention that if it was, but maybe just personal conviction based on the providential evidences. It seemed to Paul that God would continue using him to disciple the Philippians, not take him home just yet. We don't really know the full history of where he goes. There seems to be some indication that he was released from prison at this point in time, or at, during this imprisonment and that he was imprisoned again. But we don't really know all of what happened from there, but he's just saying, I hope I can continue on to disciple you. But here is one who's not afraid of death. Knowing Christ has completely changed the way he looks at life itself. It is about Christ. And it changes the way he looks at death. I am not intimidated. To die is gain. As you analyze your own heart, as you test it against the Scriptures today, do you really believe that death is gain? Do I believe that? Do we know that entering into the presence of Christ is our salvation, our hope, where we're headed? To die is gain. To live is Christ and to help you and to disciple you. Now, an argument could be made that verses 27 through 30 go best with what follows, but we're going to tack it on here. Paul moves from his own radical identification with Christ to call the Philippians to pursue such a life themselves. And so in that way, I think it fits well here in our consideration today. The key challenge that he is facing, a key challenge that they are facing, is opposition from a hostile world. And so the third characteristic of genuine identification with Christ is identification with Christ orients one to live out the gospel against opposition. So first of all, we prioritize the work of the gospel over personal honor and ambition. Secondly, identification with Christ overrules our view of life and fear of death. And then thirdly here, Identification with Christ orients one to live out the gospel against opposition. Verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, 
I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's somewhat subtle, but we see here in verse 27 Paul's concern for the Philippian church. I'm worried. I'm anxious for you in a shepherding sense. They were facing opposition from a hostile world, and they needed to stand firm against that opposition. But there were also challenges within the community itself. I want you to strive in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. I don't think these are throwaway concepts. But he knows that there's tension here in the church. There's struggles relationally. And that's normal among sinners. It's going to always be there in every church. In every church that Paul touches, you can see evidences of the strife, of the challenge. But he says to them, I want you to work hard to bring it together, to serve the cause of the gospel together. If it becomes so personal that selfish ambition rises to the top, then the gospel is compromised, the cause of Christ is compromised, you fall into disunity, and you're not able to serve Christ effectively. So work on this. Understand this. Your relationship with Christ changes your relationship with one another. And I exhort you, I call you, he says, to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the one faith of the gospel, the true faith that's been delivered to us. Normal people avoid conflict or fight back. But Paul exhorts them that they are not to be normal people. So there's trouble within the church, but there's also attack from without, verse 28. And also, don't be frightened. A Christ-centered life is not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. There's no greater token of ultimate failure of God's enemies than when God's people stand courageously against persecution. That is itself a worldwide witness to the conquest of Christ. The unbeliever must wonder about the faith of people willing to die for what they believe. Unbelievers don't generally, they they do at times, but they don't generally die for what they believe. And it is curious to them that someone would give their life for some foolish thought. And it forces them to think about it, and it forces them to consider who they are. Unbelievers are constantly changing their views to get on the right side of history. You see this in the media all the time. Things being said today that would not have been said a generation ago, people scrambling to get together on the same page about some social issue, always working to be in the majority, to be on the right side of history, as they call it. Positioning themselves to find safety with the masses. It is unnerving. 
It is convicting to the loss when a believer stands with Christ and suffers for what he or she believes. It is a message in itself of condemnation. We scramble to be safe and with the majority. Why are you standing at possibly the cost of your life, but certainly your reputation? There are so many illustrations of how the suffering of God's people in church history has resulted in the conversion of unbelievers, even sometimes in mass numbers. My mind turns back to the 16th century. 23-year-old Patrick Hamilton, his wife is pregnant with their first child. He has come back to teach at St. Andrews University in Scotland, a nation that was in the iron grip of Romanism. And he began to preach the evangelical faith there at St. Andrews, and it cost him his life at age 23. With his life before him, with a teaching post there at St. Andrews, with a wife with child, he's standing on a stake And as he's waiting for the fire to be added, or he will give his life, he cries out to God for Scotland that God would spare this darkened land. There was a man standing there watching him die, George Wishart. And George Wishart went from that place and said, I will serve Christ with renewed energy. He began to preach the gospel, and he too ended up on the stake. And there seemed to be no possible way forward. All of these leaders, these gospel preachers were dying because of the grip of Rome on that nation and its power structures. The gospel is never bound. And what began to happen in Scotland, particularly there around St. Andrews, is people began to watch these men die and say, there's something in this. And it wasn't long that the follower of George Wishart, John Knox, was allowed by God to break through. And it wasn't long where the power structures in St. Andrews and throughout Scotland were in the hands of Bible-believing people. Over and over again, this story is told in the pages of church history. Never underestimate what it means to unbelievers when you take it for Jesus. It might be in in school. There may be young people who are mocking your faith in Christ. Don't ever underestimate what it can mean to those who are watching. Stand strong. Don't underestimate what may be happening in your extended family as your family ridicules you and mocks you and cannot understand why you follow Christ. Stand firm. You never know what's being taken home. 
And as a nation, God may indeed be calling us uniquely to a time of suffering. We need to stand strong. And realize it's not the power structures who make our life miserable that's all important. It's the witness for Christ. It's the gospel going out. And many times it's the people who stand in the shadows with arms folded and never say a word, but they're watching. Their identity is Adam. Your identity is the new Adam, Christ. Let them see it. Let it play out. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Their persecution reminded them that they were participants in the conquest of Christ and would ultimately triumph with Him. Indeed, for those who identify with Christ, suffering is to be anticipated, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in this same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I'm in it, and you're in it. This is normal. This is what's going to happen when people who are serving Satan find us committed to the work of Christ. Suffer here speaks of persecution, but also likely refers to any suffering we endure as gospel-proclaiming believers, whatever it would be. Such conflict is suffered by Paul, of course, but he has assured them that all is well. Persecution is the normal Christian life. Freedom from persecution is a rare experience in this world if not a sign of our disobedience, that we don't bring more heat because of our witness. But normal Christians suffer. Normal Christianity brings opposition because of the work of Christ in a world that's in the iron grip of Satan. How do people respond? when people are out to get them, when it gets dangerous and protections break down. They look for protection. They look to protect self. They look to identify with the majority. They look to go where it is safe. Or perhaps to lash out. But identification with Christ sees suffering as a gift. Did you notice that in verse 29? For to you it has been what? It has been granted. It's been given to you as a gift to suffer for Christ. So, let's just think of it again. As we consider this radical identification with Christ, it will be evidenced by prioritizing the work of the gospel over personal honor and ambition it will overrule our view of life and death. In fact, we will welcome death. It will orient us to live out the gospel against all opposition, to stand for Christ knowing that attacks will come. And I wonder, in light of our contemporary setting and this world in which we live, we've got to really ask the question, is this even realistic? Is this fitting 
to a congregation in our day to talk about such radical orientation that you're willing to die for a cause. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can we be expected to say that? Well, it's certainly a radical message. This is no message calibrated to satisfy religious do-gooders or to satisfy curious dabblers in religion. It's not a way to stroke the ego. It's a way to die. It's a call to death. It's a message that bores down into the deepest reaches of our very being and it informs us that we must die to self and find our life in Christ alone. And it reveals the immense privilege to live a life transformed by this radical identification with Christ. If you have not come to that place, you have not embraced Christ as your life, you don't even understand what this is about or why it would be good, I would encourage you to understand that Christ won this life for His people. And as they come by faith and put their trust and their confidence in Christ, He grants this life as a gift. You do need to calculate. You do need to think through what it means. I think it would be foolish for you to come to Christ and think that you can just add Him on or try Him for a while. But please know that the answer is not in you. The answer is in a piece of news. The answer is in what Christ has done for you. And that yearning that you may indeed admit from time to time, maybe you try to stop it with alcohol or drugs or escape or materialism. Somehow you try to deaden that message. But that message that's deep inside that says, I need to be someone else, Christ is that answer. Jesus is the only one that will deliver you from you and deliver you from the judgment that your sin deserves. For those of us who have trusted Christ, we don't stand up to you in competition and say, look how much better we are. We point you to Jesus and say, look at who He is. Look at what He has done. Consider what He has done. There is no other way. There is no other answer. So for us who have trusted that message, we realize we live in a world of self-promotion and self-protection and self-fulfillment and self-orientation. By God's grace, may we pray for one another. May we be a church of, pray, of those who pray in partnership for the gospel to uphold one another in the faith that we would persevere in this life of faith in Christ. And what is the practical help of today's sermon? I thought of that over and again, praying about it. What good does this do me? What practical thing can I take out of here? It's not a bullet point list of these are the practical benefits. This is boring down deep inside to change every practical decision you ever make. To change everything that you ever think. 
to control and orient every moment of your life from this place forward. It's a message that goes far deeper than a few practical hints of how to improve your Christian walk. This sets the rudder of everything. To live is Christ and to die is gain. May God allow that to filter down deep within and saturate into our souls and change everything. Let's pray for one another. We plead, Lord, that by your mercies, you will do a unique work within us as your people. We confess in the face of this amazing truth how self-oriented we are and how easily our own selfish ambition and agendas rise up and take charge. We confess our sin. We lay it down. And I pray that there may even be prayers ascending of those who are separated from Christ, who do not know Him as Savior, that are crying out and saying, God, fill me. Take my sin. Take my life. Grant me new life in forgiveness and grace. But as we have come to know You, Lord, may this truth contribute to our growth in Christ and our faithfulness to You as Your people. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.